Welcome to OECD Podcast, where policy meets people. I'm Clara Young, and I'm here in the studio with Don Madabi Leach. Ms. Leach is a Canadian First Nations business leader, and just a quick word on terminology in Canada, Indigenous peoples are called First Nations. Dawn is from the Ondek Amna Kaning First Nations in Ontario. She is the first Indigenous woman in Canada to head up a regional financial lending institution, the Wabatek Business Development Corporation in Northeastern Ontario. She is the Vice Chair of the National Indigenous Economic Development Board of Canada and a member of the Board of Directors of Niobe's Metal Incorporated. So thank you, Ms. Leach, for coming into the studio. Well, thank you for inviting me. Miigwech. That's how we say thank you in our language. Oh, that's lovely. In 2015, the Canadian government released the final report from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. It documents the history and legacy of the nationwide system of residential schools the Canadian government set up starting in 1876. A total of about 150,000 First Nations, Inuit, and Métis children attended these boarding schools, whose goal was to assimilate them into mainstream Canadian society. Many were forcibly removed from their homes and communities and suffered ill treatment and abuse. The impact Aboriginal communities are experiencing now, the education, employment, and health gap between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal Canadians, for instance, is a result of Aboriginal policies such as the residential school system. So Ms. Leach, you've said that reconciliation should begin with economic empowerment. And I just have a few figures here. According to the OECD, the unemployment rate for Indigenous people in 2016 was 15.3% compared to 7.4% for non-Indigenous people. What do we need to do to get First Nations people into jobs? Well, thank you for asking that. Uh, First of all, I want to mention that... um, my mother went to residential school, and uh, I think that's had an impact on uh, all of her children, including myself. But uh, one of the things that my mother was very strong about is uh, uh, education and uh, um, and also uh, uh, working hard for our people and what we need to do and making sure that we're knowledgeable about our culture and traditions and our language. I always like to start from there. And uh, when I uh, looked at uh, the full report of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, it explained a lot of things to me about what my mother went through that she never spoke about. And so we are starting from a difficult time, and I think it's important for everyone to understand the impacts of of those residential schools and how it's uh, uh, contributed to the uh, socioeconomic situation that Indigenous people are in today. When you cited those unemployment figures, I can tell you that in some parts of Canada, uh, we're uh, upwards of 60% unemployment. And so it's uh, different. That's the average. That's the average, yeah. That's the average. And so, you know, some areas are definitely impacted uh, more than others in terms of the uh, social issues, too. But every time I see a problem, my mind goes into a problem-solving mode. And uh, we looked at... uh, some of the things that we can do to increase employment for Indigenous people. And uh, we did a study that talks about economic reconciliation. And part of that is understanding that when Indigenous people are employed and have the same education rates as other Canadians, uh, that raises up the whole nation's uh, 
GDP. Right. So that if our people are employed, they, that means that they're spending more money in the local economy, and uh, that just benefits the whole regional economy. And when you have people employed, the reliance on social programming is diminished. So we looked at that, and I think of different um, a part of that uh, report talks about the number of jobs we would need in different regions of Canada. For example, in Atlantic Canada, we need just under 4,000 jobs to have the same employment levels as other Canadians in Atlantic Canada. That's very doable. It's very doable if you break it down by education institutions, maybe hiring Indigenous people, health organizations hiring Indigenous people, small businesses hiring Indigenous people, governments, uh, all across uh, every sector if we could have Indigenous people employed and if there was a concerted effort by those groups uh, in institutions and organizations and businesses to hire Indigenous people, that's quite doable. So what's stopping organizations and institutions and businesses and small businesses from hiring Indigenous peoples right now? I think part of it is understanding that that's necessary for one thing, and I think the other uh, part of it is having uh, skilled Indigenous people to hire. And uh, there's different initiatives going on across the country to help with that. I know that in, in the region where I am from, in northern Ontario, we have youth uh, pre-employment training where we train the youth in um, making sure that they have certification in customer service, in food handling, we certify them in workplace safety. We have uh, different uh, kinds of certificates. We teach them also about personal financial budgeting. We also infuse the training with cultural teachings. And the when you, you yeah. when you say cultural teaching, could you go into that a little bit more? Mm-hmm. Uh, during the training for our youth, we always have uh, elders there, and every day, uh, at the beginning of the day, the youth uh, receive teachings, traditional teachings. They may be on how to live a life in balance with our teachings. They may be teachings on how to to, uh, treat each other. They may be teachings on our history, some of the beauty and uh, the richness of our culture. And I think when you teach uh, our young people about that richness of our culture, it lifts up their spirits. It helps them to live in balance. Our medicine wheel teaches about uh, the emotional side of our lives, the spiritual side, the, the mental side, and the physical side, and how we have to keep that in balance. So those are some of the initiatives that we're doing. We're also um, developing economic strategies in different fields, such as tourism, uh, fisheries and agriculture, and in mining. In the OECD's Indigenous Employment and Skills Strategies in Canada report, which came out in September, uh, we talk a lot about the importance of skills training and boosting employment for First Nations people. Um, What kind of training programs are there for First Nations who want to enter into the mining sector? In our strategy, we're looking at providing Mining 101 to the communities, just general information workshops. And uh, we are hoping to do that through the proposed new Center of Excellence for Indigenous Minerals Development. So the uh, training would be offered in the communities to provide a variety of information on how mining is done, what the value chain involves, uh, what it's used for. Um, But one of the other programs that we've looked at or are looking at is uh, 
a program that would go into the schools to teach the young people about how mining works, uh, how this particular uh, sector might work. You are speaking at a conference that OECD has organized for the end of November in Darwin, Australia, on mining regions and cities. What will you be talking about there? I want to talk about the Aboriginal mining strategy for Northeast Ontario, where the First Nation leaders, we were able to develop a strategy that looked at how to have Indigenous people have a say on how this industry is developed in our region. It includes things like uh, developing a center of excellence for Indigenous minerals development, which will be a clearinghouse of information that a First Nation can phone or contact for information on a company that may have approached them on uh, looking at some kind of uh, development in their traditional territories. It'll be a place to go to for resources uh, that'll help us to interpret maybe environmental studies that these companies have done. So it'll centralize information on the mining industry so that if there is going to be uh, development on ancestral territory that Indigenous peoples can do the research to know exactly how to negotiate or perhaps maybe even enter into business? We do have quite a few Indigenous communities involved in mining and uh, I can tell you that um, our people understand that there's a need for some of the minerals that uh, we use every day. Our people used to mine for uh, different kinds of stones and minerals as well. We know that uh, there's a necessity to take some of the minerals, but we also know that it needs to be done in a sustainable way. And I think it's important for the Indigenous voice to be heard around these tables to talk about how development should occur, or perhaps even to suggest that there should not be development in certain areas that are sacred to us. And if we're going to use a site, how do we give back to other areas? I always talk about our connection to the land, and I let people know how our language is so connected to the land. I always share this one story about, in our language, the uh, terminology for the earth is ki, K-I. Some people might uh, spell it that way. And some of our words in the language are words like nimki, which is the, the light that comes from the sky, which is our word for lightning. And we have the word makki, which is the being that lives in the earth and is our word for frog. A lot of our language is so connected to the earth. So to destroy the earth would be difficult for us. And I think our view on how to do things sustainably is so needed around the uh, industrial tables as it is, as it were, I should say, to talk about uh, these things and to share that worldview and to be that check and balance to do things sustainably. Well, you were um, on the board of directors of Niobe's Metal, which mm-hmm. is in northern Ontario. What are some other sustainable measures that you have fought for or promoted? Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, niobium is a metal that is used for example, in uh, lithium batteries, or it's used in uh, plane engines. It helps to reinforce steel. We're looking at developing uh, mining in a way that uh, reduces the um, carbon footprint that looks at uh, using uh, 
all of the latest technology to protect the earth. Can you give an example of that? Absolutely. Uh, you know, there's ways to look at geothermal. There's ways to look in different parts of the world uh, about uh, using solar and to make sure that uh, Indigenous people are involved in that, involved in the environmental monitoring, involved in uh, providing the goods and services that those companies need. But I think the biggest part is making sure that we take care of the earth Water tables is so uh, critical. The pollution, uh, often the runoff from mining. Exactly. How do we mitigate those kinds of things? And when you have a company that's looking to ensure that they look at every possibility and every innovation to make sure that uh, the earth is protected. Thanks, Dawn. Well, it's been a pleasure to be here. Thank you. And thank you for listening to OECD Podcasts. To listen to our other podcasts, please visit soundcloud.com slash OECD.